The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. I'm still so fascinated with with some of the Dean Smith stuff uh, because we have so much respect for him and, and, and all that he accomplished when all the Carolina guys are getting together and, and sharing old stories, what's, what's your favorite Dean Smith story that you like to tell? Oh, well, philosophical. The thing that I like to tell is the fraternity of Carolina basketball is I think the closest knit tight love fest fraternity of basketball in the world. And the blessing is that I'm a part of that. Uh, and, and the truth of the matter is Coach Smith loved the game, but I think he loved the student athlete more. He wanted his players to get it, to get their degree. You know, he never thought the game of basketball was going to be where you could become rich. I mean, he recruited you to get your degree. And I don't know what the number is. It's like 95% of all players under Dean Smith graduated. And that's a pretty amazing number. So I think that philosophically, that's the one good story. Um, you know, the one story that he told me once that uh, I was a senior when John Lucas was a freshman. And John Lucas played in Durham, North Carolina, and wanted to go to North Carolina. And John Lucas said, if I come to North Carolina, can I, will I start? And Coach Smith said point blank only if you can beat out George Carl and that's who coach Smith was he never gave anybody any he never gave any starting position to anybody in recruiting including me um you know he said he said I you know he would say to me I think you're good enough to start but you're going to have to earn that and John Lucas would go to of course go to Maryland and would be lefty's guy and you know, I got to play against him for a couple times, and fortunately, I think we won most of those games. And, but John Lucas and, and you know, I laugh about that all the time because, you know, I didn't, I never, I never knew that at the time. But Coach Smith was on, you know, he believed in it, the game was a wee game and not a big game. And he, you know, I think he would have trouble coaching today's players because I don't think a lot of our high school AAU players. Are, are in the Wii basketball as much as I think he would like them to be. What was it like being back on campus after you won the, the 71 NIT? Well, I think the NIT was was one of, you know, we, I don't know if I, you know anything about that NIT team. We won every game in the NIT by 20 points or more. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of our statement that the NCAA, you know, we should have been in the NCAA. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, the next year we got McAdoo. Bobby Jones became a sophomore. 
and we had a dynamite team that year, and we ran into Florida State before we got to Bill Walton. Uh, but those two years were, you know, they were great years for Carolina basketball. You know, the only thing that we came up short was we got the NIT championship and not the NCAA championship. You remember what it was like in the locker room in after losing in the '72 Final Four? Uh, it was miserable because uh, you know we got beat by a very athletic team. Um, Florida State had two little point guards that were so much faster than I was. I think I covered the back of them more than I covered the front. <laughs> uh, but you know they beat us fair and square. U Durham was the coach, um, and we would go on, of course, and beat Louisville in the in the, in the consolation game, but. We might have overlooked Florida State, uh, but I don't think Coach Smith did because he did tell me before the game, this is the one team we probably shouldn't press. Regarding those those North Carolina coaches that you played for, Frank McGuire and, and Dean Smith, obviously we could do days and days and it wouldn't cover what, what you probably learned from them. But when you think back on your time with both of those guys, what, what are some of the, the big memories that you have? Well, Coach McGuire recruited my mother. Um, you know, my dad passed away when I was young, so she told me I was going to North Carolina. Pretty, pretty good decision. Then he left, and, <laughs> you know, um, that was, that was really tough. And, uh, because he was so different from Coach Smith. Uh, he might have been the greatest game coach of all time. Practice, all we did was scrimmage, you know, which was so much fun. When Coach Smith took over, he was more, I, I guess you'd say, of a teacher. Every, every practice, he had a practice plan. Every drill was timed. Um, Every drill was basketball specific. It was like going to a classroom. Um, and at when I first played for him, I, I didn't know if I could handle it. He was so different than Coach McGuire. But, um, God, the more you were around him, the more you realize that God made this special person that nobody will ever be like. Um, when you were done playing, uh, that was when you realized how much he loved you, how much he cared about you. Not that Coach McGuire did. I mean, it, Coach McGuire always stayed in my life. But uh, Dean called me all, almost every day, asking if there was anything I needed. Um, he invited me back to Carolina always making me feel like I was something special. Do we have a couple of minutes? I'll give you a couple of interesting stories. We've, we've, got, we've, we've got as long as, as long as you have, we've got it. Yep. Well, um, I remember we had the ninth pick in the draft when I was in Denver one year and coach, coach Smith used to always help me in the draft because he always knew he always had guys that were potentially going to be picked. And he would always share information with me, which might help you when you're going to prepare for the draft and maybe have a selection you want that you know somebody else might take. Um, so one year we had a nice pick in the draft, and 
he called me up and said, New Jersey is going to take Tommy Lagarde at number four. And I said, Coach, we don't need Tommy Lagarde. But I heard, I'm glad you told me that because, you know, we heard they were going to take Bernard King. I'm pretty sure of that. And so uh, he said, well, who are you going to take? And I said, well, we like Delando Blackman and we like Tree Rollins. You know, we're going to get a good ticket, number nine. And they're going to go good with David Thompson and Bobby Jones and Dennis. So we're going to. So, uh, and whenever I got information, I always shared it with owners. It's a little different now because when I was coaching most of the time, I I watched college and I, I would always call my college friends to find out about players. And when we'd bring them in to work out, I worked them all out because even though you you might bring in 55 guys, you might only draft two, but I wanted kids to know I cared enough about them to work them out. And then I wanted to see if they accepted coaching or not and, you know, what kind of kids they were. But to make a long story short, I, we had 32 owners, but one of, one of the main guys was Carl Shear, my general manager, who really was a business guy, a great guy. And he said, who are we going to draft? And we used to always put down the top 100 guys because the draft was a little deeper than by order of who we thought, using our scouts and our coaches, everybody had input. And then we'd do it by position. And the rule of thumb is we're going to take the best player no matter what, you know, and prepare for the draft that way. And if it was close, we might go by position, but not normally we'd always go best player. But well, two minutes before the draft, coach called me up and told me Tommy Lagarde failed this physical and New Jersey was taking Bernard King. And he said, you're taking Tommy Lagarde and hung up. <laughs> um, so now um, I'm, I'm afraid to tell my owners that and call Shear. Um, and I found out that Tommy Lagarde had flunked because he had a bad knee. Um, well, the draft went on in New Jersey, sure enough, took Bernard. Then five, six, seven went. And all of a sudden, we're going to either take Tree Rollins or Bernard King in everybody's idea. And you only have five minutes in the draft. Everybody's dying to know who I'm going to tell them to take. And you got to tell the guy in Denver to call New York and tell him you pick. So the eighth pick went and both of them were still there. And now everybody's going crazy. What are you going to do, Larry? You know, so uh, I whispered into the guy's ear, the Denver Nuggets were the ninth pick and take Tommy Lagarde. Well, when everybody heard it, they went crazy. Tommy Lagarde, and by that time, it had gotten around that he had a flunk to physical. And people weren't real excited about me. We flew him in. He flunked our physical. Um, and when we signed him, there was an exception made that if he hurt that knee, we didn't have to pay him. But if we traded him, his full contract was going to be guaranteed. So we were playing golf that summer. Oh, by the way, we traded him. Lenny Wilkins wanted to get rid of a guy, and he knew he knew about Tommy and 
wanted Tommy, even though Tommy could play maybe one game and maybe have to sit out a game. So I'm playing golf with Coach that summer, and I said, Coach, why did you make me take Tommy? You knew he couldn't play. You knew he was hurt. And he said, Larry, I knew you'd be all right. <laughs> and that was just that was just huh. that that was the kind of person he was. And I, if you look back on my career, I I drafted everybody from Carolina. Um, anybody told me to. Um, no matter what. Um, and matter, matter of fact, we had the 60th pick, which is the last pick in one draft. And I was going to take Scott Williams. And he called me and said, don't you dare take Scott Williams at 60. I said, coach, we had him down in the top 20 in the draft. He said, well, if you take him, he's stuck with you. Otherwise, now he's got 29 other teams that can go after him and that was when you didn't have to guarantee a second round contract. So right. he ended up going to Chicago, getting a bonus and winning about three championships with Michael Jordan. So, but then you had him in Philadelphia. Like, yeah. Well, I ended up inheriting him. He had signed oh. a free agent contract and people were really, really tough on him because when you're a, when you're a role player on Michael Jordan and then all of a sudden you're, you're expected to be a star going somewhere else. It's not the easiest thing. So, but but the the moral of the story is, you know, Coach cared so much about the people that played for him and coached with him that his loyalty to you and them was was without exception. It was incredible, and I, you know. I, Probably the greatest team coach of any team sport, I think. That was dope. What was it like being 16 years old as a freshman, stepping onto Carolina's campus mm-hmm. right after winning, a, right after they won a national title? You know, it's different for me. I'm a, I'm a different kind of kid. I grew up. I'm like a, you know, I'm a little bit of a farm kid. I I, I love basketball from the standpoint of um, it gave me an opportunity to number one go to college for free. I knew that was going to be a great opportunity to get to school mm-hmm. for free, uh, and it gave me an outlet. I, I you know as I was a kid growing up, even all the way through college. Uh, and probably even into my first couple of years into the NBA, I was not a a rah rah fan of of basketball players. So when I got to Chapel Hill uh, to play basketball, and at that that time North Carolina was you know obviously just an incredible incredible program, Coach Smith's incredible coach. I didn't understand the magnitude of playing uh, for University of North Carolina. Um, you know, I was obviously heavily recruited and had all these opportunities and saw all these different things. And so when I got there and the first time I walk into the gym and I'm watching, you know, pick up basketball there and I'm looking at this game, these games in the, in the beginning of September on the, you know, on campus and I'm seeing all of these NBA basketball players playing pickup basketball. And I'm starting to recognize a few of these guys. I'm like, man, 
why are you guys out here playing back? You know, shouldn't they be at training camp or something like that? And so I started to realize a little bit of the culture that was in Chapel Hill and, and what it kind of evolved in, in being uh, a part of that basketball program and that basketball family hits you automatically. It's, it's, all, it's like you walk into that gym and you've, you know, I've walked into a bunch of gyms as a high school basketball player and all over the country and doing all these, you know, all American games and stuff like that. And it's a big moment. But I remember walking into that gym and watching in Carmichael and watching that first pickup game that I was going to be playing in in a few days and looking at all these professional basketball players, and I felt really small. I felt like the whole moment felt so much bigger than I was that it was really interesting because it kind of kind of took guys, and these big programs do this, they, they, it takes guys and it kind of puts you in your place. Now, it's not that way today because you got AAU programs that are just, you know, they're huge and these, these young men come to campus now, they're, they have so much experience and, and whatnot that the moment's not very big. But you got to remember, I left playing pickup basketball with my ex-high school teammates who were, you know, you're killing them. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, you're the best thing in the county. You're killing them. And you're, you're going, then you go to the, you know, I was in a little town of Black Mountain, North Carolina, which is a really small town in western North Carolina. And the, the large, the biggest city next to us was Asheville, North Carolina. And that was, for little country kids, that was the big city. So I would go there and play against the best that they had and just crush them. And so, uh, now all of a sudden I'm walking into this gym and, and I'm watching, you know, pick up basketball games. I'm looking at, you know, Walter Davis and, you know, Mark Ivaroni's playing and all these guys. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be different. And so, uh, I remember going out to play and, uh, you know, you had Kurt Rambis. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why these guys in Chambers Chapel Hill, but I go play the first time and I just, I was trying to just play my game and the speed was so incredible, um, you know, with those guys. And, and that was the first thing I realized is that I got to play at full speed if I'm going to play. And so that was really what kind of set you back uh, was just the speed at which the game had, at, at the level it had stepped to. So it was, it was tough. The first, I'd say first two months, being on that campus and going into that gym every day, you know, and Coach Smith kind of sitting up in the top watching and just the the, the guys who were there playing, uh, it was unbelievable. I mean, you may see, you know, Larry Bird walk through the gym. It was incredible. It was just incredible. And all these guys want to play pickup because you had, you know, the best pickup games in the, in the United States of America were in Chapel Hill during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So, uh, really incredible moment and really awe-inspiring. And then it's funny how you look back from four years later and you're in charge of those games and the moment's not that big. It's, you know, it's just it's really interesting to, to look back and see that perspective. But the initial uh, moment was huge. And uh, I thought to myself, boy, this is going to be interesting. I wonder, how, wonder what's going to happen next. I've always been that kind of guy. I never – I'm never one that says, "Oh, I can't do it." Or I always wonder what's going to happen next, and and uh, what happened next was interesting. It was a, it was a heck of a lesson. We want to get to the Michael Jordan stuff and how you guys were sort of linked eternally, as as you as you both uh, 
were in the NBA playing against each other. But I'm curious with Dean Smith, I know you spoke about two things that he was extremely loyal no matter what Mm -hmm. and how he would write handwritten notes to you. So I guess my question is two parts. One, what's what's an example of just how loyal he could be? And two, what what would he say in those in those notes to you? Yeah, Coach Smith, uh, uh, just a remarkable human being. Um, you know, we, we talk about, and again, we're talking about basketball, but, you know, being in his presence uh, and, and being a part of something that his family he created uh, is the most impactful thing that has happened in my life. Um, you know, he, he was really unique, and, and I, I think the thing that made him so, so, so different uh, is in his, his beliefs. You know, he was a, a devout Christian man. Um, he was a, a, a devout uh, Democrat, extremely liberal. Uh, I used to kid him about that, but just very, very, very liberal Democrat and uh, would often speak his mind on politics uh, back in an era where coaches just kind of didn't do that. Um, mm. And I always found that really interesting, the, the psychology that he, he employed in his everyday life, whether it was dealing with us or with other people, was interesting. He always, you know, it, it's not playing games, but he was always challenging people to rethink. And uh, I never forget, I was coming back from uh, uh, Asheville or Black Mountain. I was coming back to campus, and uh, I was riding with this, this young lady. And uh, we were coming into Burke County, North Carolina, and uh, uh, I was driving, and uh, you know, she was a young Caucasian lady riding back to school with me. And uh, I'm just riding down the road, and all of a sudden I look up, and you know, there's cop cars behind me, you know. And, I looked, I mean, I wasn't speeding. I was just riding, you know, no big deal. And I'm riding along, I look, and so they all, there's a few of them, and they all turned their lights on. All right, so, you know, they rode behind me for a little while, but I, like I said, I didn't think anything about it. Get pulled over. Guy walks up to the car, and uh, he looks at me. He said, uh, boy, where are you going? I said, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to Chapel Hill. He said, uh, you been drinking? This was like a Sunday afternoon. I'm trying to get back to school. <laughs> I'm like, well, no, I, I was at church about two hours ago. I, I don't, you know, drink on Sunday after church. He's like, huh? He's like, ma'am, where are you going? And she's like, well, I'm going back to Chapel Hill, I guess. And I'm looking at her like, well, if she's in the car with me, I guess. I, <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're we're both going. So just really uncomfortable. And I was, you know, I, I you know, I've always had to. And it's a blessing from my parents. I, I've always, even when I'm in a tough situation, I've always had the ability to laugh, you know, when stuff's just ridiculous. So I'm kind of laughing, and he's looking at me like, you know, what are you laughing at, you know? And I'm I say anything. He's like, so uh, he's like, he said, just hold tight. He goes back, runs my tags. He comes back, and uh, he's like, oh, okay. He said, you play basketball there at Chapel Hill, don't you? I said, yes, sir, play, play basketball. He said, well. He said, uh, you need to slow down coming through Burke County. I said, well, I said, I was going, I think I was going like 48 miles an hour. I don't know. Speed limit's like 55. He said, well, I had you going 65. He said, so you're going to get a ticket today. I said, all right. So he gives me a ticket. 
you know, I pull out, and, man, he followed me for, like, 20 miles. It was really odd. So I get off the exit there. I get to Chapel Hill. I go, you know, next morning, Monday morning, I go and talk to Coach Smith. I said, Coach, I got pulled over from Burke County. I said, uh, guy held me like an hour. And I said, it was just really, you know, odd. And finally he says, oh, you play basketball. And he let me go. But he gave me a ticket. I said, you know, I, okay, it is what it is. I said, I wasn't speeding. So I give the ticket to Coach Smith, and he's looking at it. And he's like, it's got also a level four. It says level four violation. So we start looking at that. So we call the little attorney that's there. And he says, uh, Coach Smith says, the attorney says that it said the guy smelled alcohol in the car. I said, well, Coach, I didn't have any. I didn't have anything in the car. I just had my clothes, and I was just riding. He said, okay. So he got, I mean, Coach Smith got, he was just absolutely pissed off. He went as far, and I forgot about it. I had a ticket, paid it, no big deal, whatever. Went on about my business. But he went after this guy and leveled racism and and just absolutely went after the guy, uh, the officer, and went as far as going to the the state uh, and investigating this guy, this officer, and just made his life miserable. Uh, And the guy ended up having a terrible pay. He's just not a very good guy. But just it was over something that was really small, but in my mind, you know, it was small, but in his mind, it's something that could have been a problem. Could have been a bigger problem. If I'd have said something smart, if I'd have been a, you know, just whatever. Sure. Wrong time of day, it could have been a problem. And I didn't see that. And I remember talking to him years later about it and talking about, you know, systemic racism and those types of things that, you know, in my, in that era that were a little bit prevalent, but it was just kind of the way it was. But he was explaining to me how wrong it was. Now, this is beyond basketball. This is something that, you know, I, I didn't – I grew up in a, a little town of, you know, 3,500 people. Maybe we had, you know, 100 African-American people, of which I'm, all, you know, I'm kin to all of them. And so – but it's, it's, it's pretty segregated, but it's a very, uh, very calm community. Uh, because everybody just kind of did their thing and stayed in their place, even in the 80s, you know. And so you don't – I didn't realize – I didn't recognize what had happened there and why, you know, you know, you get – I got pulled over every other month for no reason driving up and down the road. You know, you just – I didn't understand that. And I just thought that's the way it was. And he explained to me and he showed me how egregious this is, how wrong this is because of the color of my skin. And he would always talk to us and really implore us to live our lives as if we're equal, no matter what. And and this is beyond basketball. Like I'm saying, this is something that I don't know how many coaches would do that. You know, I don't know how many coaches. Uh, he went. I remember at one time, Governor Hunt, Jim Hunt, was a very popular uh, governor in the state of North Carolina for many terms. And I remember they had, had a. Uh, it was a political forum. And all of these people were there, and anybody, Coach Smith. And this just totally blew me away. Coach Smith was there, and they were talking. And uh, they were talking about the politics of North Carolina and education. Coach Smith, very pro-education, uh, really pushed us hard academically. And I remember they were talking to all these, these different uh, politicos, and they got to Coach Smith. And Coach Smith started talking about education. He started talking about the lack of educational opportunities for African-Americans 
in the state of North Carolina. And he also started talking about the prison systems in North Carolina, how uh, the prisons were full of African Americans, uh, to, you know, just, just the inequality there and, and how it was wrong and how it was a system of, of trying to corral uh, the African American culture. And then he looked at Jim Hunt, who's the governor of North Carolina, and said, you, sir, are a murderer. Uh, he, was, wow. he was talking about the death penalty in North Carolina. He said, you are a murderer by keeping the death penalty intact. He says, that is murder. And he said, and then he started talking about biblical. And it just was unbelievable. Uh, and and, and it, it, you look back through the, his life, uh, as a as a man, uh, Coach Smith and and his stances on uh, you know racism and inequality and abortion and and you know be, you know very pro life and and the the death penalty in North Carolina, it's remarkable, it's remarkable. And then when you look at the basketball side of the way he impacted the game. You're looking at you're just talking about a guy. It's just it's so much more than how many games you win, uh, and that's why when you look back through his tenure at North Carolina, there's a, a huge. It's not a thread. It's a cord. Uh, I mean, I see. It's fun. I was standing. I was in Santa Monica last week, and I was getting ready to walk into a restaurant, and I heard somebody yelling my name. It was a crowd, and I was just trying to turn in. I was like, I wasn't paying attention, and all of a sudden, somebody grabs my shoulder. And it was King Rice and Rick Fox, hmm. who were younger than I am. Yeah. And but they're like my brothers. And we hugged each other. And it was just like I was so happy to see them. And it's if I see Billy Cunningham, uh, who's much older than I am, mm-hmm. I'm so happy to see him. Same thing if I'm talking to Michael Jordan, or if I'm talking to Sam Perkins, or James Worthy, or if I'm talking to Ralph Meekins, who was the manager. On, on some of our teams, or David Hart. It's like Coach Smith created this huge family of guys and, and gals who were managers, and we're all linked through his, uh, through him and his, his ideologies and his philosophy that he imparted on all of us. And, and interestingly enough, a lot of us in that time and there come from, you know, Really, especially the, the the guys of you know the African American guys come from impoverished backgrounds or really small town backgrounds, and you learn how to almost become a not necessarily a man, but that is but a gentleman. That's what you became uh, through being around Coach Smith, uh, being under his watch from the age of you know seventeen to to, to you know twenty one, twenty two. Uh, some guys 23 uh, the impact my wife kids me today uh, about my man you know some of my mannerisms are are, are coach Smith like and and I you know I laugh about it whatever but you know I watched him and and I think this is what makes him like I say so unique and we all all players that go through and play for coaches uh, whether it's high school coaches or T-ball coach, little league coach, whatever, you have great respect for those people and you learn something from them. So my experience may not be a whole lot different than an experience someone else may have had in a different way 
from their coach, whether it was, you know, Coach Terry Holland at Virginia or Mike Krzyzewski at Duke or, or whomever. But my the experience that we had was one of evolving as young men and being able to walk off that campus into the world uh, with with leadership skills that were uh, not not the type of skills that 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 were overbearing uh, and and you know just athletically driven, but skills that were of you know hard work, but also empathy and uh, knowledge and taking the, the the time to understand and learn about the people you're dealing with and the people you're around. I never will forget my senior year. We were playing in this tournament in New York, the Big Apple tournament, and you know it was it was us and then a bunch of Ivy League schools, and we were playing. I think we were playing Brown or someone like that. And um, man, I was killing these guys. I mean, I was killing them, and uh, I could have scored fifty. I mean, everybody. I mean, it just was killing. I remember we went at halftime, and I'd scored like twenty-five points or something like that at half. I remember Coach Smith came in, and he was just he was aggravated, and he walked in. And we're all laughing and stuff. We're up like 30 points, you know. And he looked at me and he said, Brad, I said, yes. He said, uh, you missed three screens that you could have set for your teammate that would have given us opportunities. He said that. He said, you just are not focused on what you're doing. I'm sitting there saying to myself, this man lost his mind. I just scored, man, I, I'm killing. It can't nobody in this gym guard me. And he chewed me out for about 30 seconds for not setting a screen for Joe Wolf. And, and I, you know, and so I'm sitting there. I'm sitting, I remember, I'm sitting, I'm, I remember saying, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the sweat drop on the floor and I'm saying to myself, okay, now, I, so now I'm starting to think, when did I miss that screen? I was like, okay, I'm trying to think from this screen. It kind of, it really pissed me off what it did. So we go back out. He's just, he's at the, well, he's at the chalk, but he's just showing us how we, you know, we're, we're, we're messing up on this. We didn't run this play right. We didn't rotate on defense. It's just this, this, this. So we end up winning probably like 50 points. We get through, and I'm, you know, we go on. And, you know, about a month later, we're playing Wake Forest, and we're I'm playing. I'm having a really bad game. I just can't. I'm in a bad rhythm. You know, I've scored like 12 points or something like that. It's like two minutes left in the game. We're down four points. He calls timeout. We go over there and sit down. He's like, all right. He's like, we're playing really well. We're playing great. He's like, Brad. He said, this is what we're going to run. We're going to run this play three different times. We're going to run it three different ways. We're going to go through you all three times. He's like, you're going to score, and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to score the winning basket. All right? He said, I'm not going to call another timeout. This is how we're going to do it. I'm sitting there saying to myself, okay, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the man. I can do this, but I'm playing horrible, and, and they're double-teaming me, and it's really difficult. But we go out, we play, we run those plays, and I, I score like, six or eight points in two minutes. It was incredible. I uh, didn't score the winning basket because we actually had gotten ahead during that point in time and ended up winning the game by like four. And uh, I just was sitting there. And years later, I was talking to him about that. I was like, yeah, his mind was unbelievable. I talked to him about the Brown thing. He laughed. And then I talked to him about that Wake Forest game. He's like, yeah. He's like, I said, you told me I was going to score the winning basket. I said, you thought I was going to hit a shot or have the confidence. I thought to take, to take the shot at the buzzer and win it. He said, no, you, you did score the winning basket. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you scored like eight points in a row. And it right. put us up, you know, and we went on to win. 
I said, we never, we never look back after you got us ahead. I said, well, darn, I never thought about it like that. <laughs> He's like, and I was like, you know, why did you do that? I said, you know, and this was after I was gone and came back, and this is just, you know, we're, we're no longer coaching and player. We're just, you know, kind of coaching and son now. He's like, well, he's like, psychologically, people are so different. But he said, to be a really good coach, now this is him telling me this. He said, you have to, you know, you have to make everyone think that they're being treated the same, but you do have to approach each individual differently. I said, what do you mean by that? He's like, I told Michael Jordan he couldn't hold his breath for five minutes. He said, Michael would be blowing snot bubbles out of his nose trying to hold his breath for five minutes. (laughs) If I told Brad Darty to hold his breath for five minutes, you'd laugh at me. I said, yeah, you're exactly right, because I'm not trying to hold my breath. I'm not. (laughs) He He said, so sometimes it becomes visceral versus intellectual. He says, now, if I told you to run through that wall, it was going to be for the betterment of your teammates. He said, you would give it a consideration. I said, I'd give it a consideration. I probably wouldn't do it. I said, but if I told you that wall was actually a fake wall and it would collapse, and only you knew that, but your teammates didn't know that, but it was going to be for the experience, you'd do it. I said, absolutely. He says, well, that's what I know about you, and that's what I know about Michael. And he said, that's what, I, that's what you have to learn about people when you deal with people. I did, he was just remarkable in the way he thought about things and the effort and the energy he put into us individually. I remember he would yell at some people in practice and others. He wouldn't like, I, I'm, I'm a perfect example of that. I remember we would, we would play. We had, I had certain teammates who were really good, and, and he would yell at them. And, and, and then with me, he would stop and he'd say, come here. And we would discuss it. And, uh, and he's like, if I yell at you, your, 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 your mechanism to constructive criticism is just to laugh. And I'm like, yeah, it is. And he says, if you're doing that, you're not accepting anything I'm saying. And it doesn't bother you enough that you're going to do something about it. I'm like, no. He says, but if I take the time to explain it to you, you work hard enough, you know, you'll try your darndest to make it happen, but it's got to kind of be on your terms. Like, that's just incredible because as a coach, I would never be able to do that. I just yell at everybody. You know, it's just – so that's some – that's pretty long, but uh, kind of a, a little synopsis of Coach Coach Smith in a, in a nutshell. The last thing then, Brad, on, on Coach Smith, did he really leave all of his former players 200 bucks in his will to have dinner on him? It's unbelievable. So we go and, uh, you know, we have his memorial service, and I was so honored uh, by his family to, to be asked to, to speak on behalf of, of some of the guys. So it's myself and Phil Ford and, and Antoine Jameson. And um, so we, we had that event in, in the Smith Center, and it was unbelievable. Uh, you know, there were 20,000 people there, and we were telling Coach Smith stories and uh, saying goodbye. And uh, we go through that and do that. And then the next day, I go back home, and I go into my office, and there's a there's a letter on my desk. And so I uh, sat there for a little while. I wasn't paying no attention to it. something from Chapel Hill. I figured it's alumni association wanting money again or something, so I, I just let it sit there. And uh, eventually I get around to opening it, opening it that evening, and I open it up, and it said uh, a letter from Coach. It said, Bradley. He called me Bradley. He said, Bradley, he said, here's $200. He said, I want you – 
to go out and have dinner on coach. And uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, and there was a check for 200 bucks made out to me to take my wife out for dinner. Uh, just unbelievable. And he did that for all of his players and, and managers who were under his guidance for those almost 40 years. So just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Even posthumously, we're in his thoughts. <laughs> you know? And uh, just remarkable. Remarkable, remarkable person. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.